Nice. All right, that's enough. COVID's still here. Sit down. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn to the book of Titus. If you're looking for the book of Titus, it's with all the T's in the New Testament. New Testament is the second half of the Bible. If you're new to church, new to the Bible, go ahead and turn to Titus. And I'm so glad that you've decided, whether you're here in this room or you're online, I'm so incredibly excited that you've decided to join us on this journey of unpacking another book of the Bible. Uh, now, before we jump into things, I just want to identify a few things. This might be new, old news to you, might be new news to you, but I do want to make sure we're all on the same page. Whenever we begin to dissect a book, there are times when certain topics will arise. Some of those topics are really easy. They're fun. They're joy-filled. They, they make us feel love. They give us encouragement. They give us peace. Other times, eh, not so much. Uh, some, some of the Bible, if, if you've read through the Bible cover to cover, you know there are some things in the Bible that aren't easy. That, that's just a reality, right? But it's all God's word. God's word says that it itself is all useful for training and teaching in righteousness. And so as we maneuver through Titus, there are gonna be some potholes along the way. I only say that to encourage you, buckle up. Buckle up as we proceed through this very, very short book, but that is very, very filled with some power punches in that. And as we do, it's healthy to disagree on some things. Especially in our times, let's stick just to the church, it's okay to disagree. It's okay to see things different. That should not cause war. It should not cause people to leave a church. It should not cause a splintering or a splitting of the church. None of that. It should also not preclude you from having deeper, more meaningful conversations with those who are far from God. Those who never step foot in a church. Because one of the things that we never want to do is to stand so strongly in our convictions, on the convictions of the word, that we lose our voice to the world. That is critical, and that happens all over the world because we are so wanting to fight for what God's word says that we lose the voice who needs to hear it. So I'm not saying don't be convicted. I'm not saying don't have principles. I'm not saying don't have strong beliefs. Be careful that you don't lose your voice. Does that make sense to everyone? So I just wanted to throw that out there so we're all on the same page as we begin to navigate through these scriptures. So with that said, sorry to ask you to do it again. Would you please stand as we read the first four verses of Titus chapter one? Some of you, this is the most exercise you've had in a week, all right? So you're welcome and it's free. All right, so uh, we're going to begin. We're going to be reading from Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We're going to do something a little bit different again this morning. We're all going to read it aloud. It's on the screens. It's on a several different screens in the lobby. And so if you feel comfortable, let's begin reading. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that is in accordance with godliness in the hope of eternal life that God 
God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, in due time he revealed his word through the proclamation with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my loyal child, in the faith we share, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Amen. You can have a seat. I apologize that says... um, the New Living Translation, it's actually the New King James Version on there. So that's my fault in editing. So let's set the stage here. So we're, we're, we're just going to jump in to this book of Titus. And what I want to do this morning is I really want to lay the foundation for which we're going to continue to build as we move forward. So I want to encourage you, if you didn't bring your Bible, go ahead and turn it on on your, on your phone or your tablet. There's also Bibles in most of the chairs in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles, but it is so important to have the Word of God opened on your lap, whether digital or paper. America is often referred to as the Christian nation. Any of you ever heard that? before? Yeah, it's America's the Christian nation. Now, there may be some debate as to whether that label was true at the start of our nation, and we can certainly debate that, but it seems now that no one would argue that we are still a Christian nation. We might have Christian remnants, but we are no longer a Christian nation. Thankfully, at least for now, we still have remnants of the Christian faith within our constitution and law, uh, although the way things are moving, that is going to be short-lived. But in practice, we are a very pagan nation. That's just who we are. I I hope uh, that's not news to you. If it is, I'd love to have a cup of coffee and talk about that. Over the past 40 or 50 years, for those of you who remember church, who remember Christianity, uh, back 40, 50 years ago, you would probably agree that a major moral shift has happened within our country. And then if you grab just even the last several years, it's expedited even faster And it seems like every day, every week, every hour, if you would, there's something that shows this is happening faster and faster and faster. And since this is the culture that we live in, this is where we work, this is where we have family, this is where we have friends, this is where we have our social engagements, we face a very serious question, and that's this. How can we live as God's holy people in a pagan nation, in a pagan world. The Apostle Paul's very, very short letter addresses this dilemma. This is what's interesting. It just seems like God continues to give us studies that directly relate to what we are dealing with even in today. Penned from Nicopolis in Greece around A.D. 63 or 65, right around there. If you're into taking notes, uh, there's going to be a ton over the next several weeks to throw at you so you understand the book of Titus even further. So if you have a notebook or a pen or you take notes in your your, uh, phone, then this would be great to do it. It's written sometime after uh, after Paul's first imprisonment and before his second and final imprisonment where he is executed. Paul visited Crete, 
with Titus. We're going to be referring to Crete quite a bit. And he leaves Titus there. This is very, very interesting to help him resolve some problems with church planning. Any of you have ever been a part of a church plant? Problems happen in church plants. Uh, you can't find microphones. You don't know who's on first. It's, it can be quite chaotic, even in our day, let alone back in uh, around 63 AD. And he leaves Titus there to resolve some problems. There's churches that are struggling, and they actually need someone who understands the church plant model, someone that really understands sound doctrine, someone that really knows their Bible to help kind of guide them to get a foothold on what it means to be the church in the culture. And so Titus ends up being the one to draw the short stick. And so he receives this letter. Crete is an island about 160 miles long and approximately 35 miles wide. It's, it's just below, just south of Italy and Greece, uh, just to the east. Uh, and it's a beautiful, beautiful island back then and today. Uh, and so this is Crete, uh, just in, in, in off to the Mediterranean Sea. The Cretan people, this is important for us to understand, like tell us about the people that uh, Paul is writing about. Well, the Cretan people had developed a notoriously bad reputation, horrible reputation. One of the worst in these times of a people group. Their reputation in the Roman world were they were harsh. They were critical. They were racist. And they had a corrupt culture. Every political sphere was corrupt. It was bad. It wasn't fun to live there unless you were one of the ones who were living that way. That is Crete. And Paul cites one of their poets, Epimenides, in chapter 1, verse 12. He says this about the Cretans. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts. Hopefully no one's referred to you that way. Lazy gluttons. This is Paul. Now, we're often told, we always tell our kids, don't call people names. When the truth hurts, the truth hurts. This is the Cretan people. They're liars, they're evil, and they're lazy. This is the famous liars paradox. If you've, if you've studied kind of the liars paradox explanation, it kind of goes like this, where if the Cretans are making the statement, telling the truth, then they're lying, right? But if he's lying about Cretans always being liars, then the Cretans don't always lie. It's like reverse psychology. It's like looking at a mirror and looking at things backward. And Paul seems to do this a little bit of tongue-in-cheek. He's not completely harsh, but he is calling a spade a spade. But it shows their reputation. It shows the people that God has chosen to plant a church. And it doesn't always have to be this way because we know this here in Boulder, God's power is stronger than any oppression that is in our land that God is going to continue to move. Same thing here in Crete. They were such notorious liars. Get this. You, you ever know this little tangent? You ever know when you go somewhere and you see rules on the wall and you're like, I wonder why they made that rule. Why do they have that rule? Someone did something where they like, there's one idiot, 
So chances are there's more idiots, so let's make a rule, and we got to post it, right? Like, do not climb the fence and go into the lion's den. Like, you probably shouldn't have to say that, but someone did, probably got eaten, and, and boom, now we have a rule. It's the same thing here. Uh, the Cretans were such notorious liars that the Greek language coined a word, credizo, to play the Cretan. That's what it means, to pretend to be a Cretan, to be a liar, that was defined, that was coined based on these people. They're not very fun. They're not ones who you want to invite over to Easter lunch. They're not ones you want to go get uh, a meal with because you know they're just going to lie to your face. But the seed of the gospel, this is great. The seed of the gospel, which is powerful, and I give you hope for those of you who are parents, the seed of the gospel has been planted in your kids. You never know when those are going to take root. And here in the most uh, unimaginable place, the, the seed of the gospel has somehow sprouted in that inhospitable people group called Cretan soil. But the Gentiles, who were then converted, they bring in all of their own baggage. Do you guys understand that? Now, let me give you an example. When you get married, you both bring in your baggage. Will, Hannah, <laughs> Tanner, Amy. Okay? That's what happens. You just both bring in your own baggage, and now you've got more baggage. Awesome. They don't, they, they don't even talk about that on the wedding day, rightfully so. But nevertheless, these, these Gentiles, they've been converted. They're bringing in all their own garbage. And as verse 11 indicates, some of the Hellenistic Jews were promoting false doctrine as well, making it a very difficult situation to live, an even more difficult situation to do ministry. So there's all kinds of false doctrine going on. There's all kinds of lies being spread. There's all kinds of corruption. And Paul's like, hey, Titus, go give them the old college try. Like, make something beautiful out of this church. How many of you are glad you're not Titus? I know I am. So Titus had a commendable track record of dealing with very difficult problems. This will teach you, the more that you know, the more people will put you into service. It's a lot easier to go, I don't know how to do that. Uh, and then they go find someone who does. The more you know, like Titus, they're going to put him into action. So Paul leaves Titus in Crete in the church for the sole task of get this church on solid footing. And so he writes this letter to him and to the churches to give instruction on how to be the people of God in that culture. It's just fascinating. So that's the setting and with that, let's get at it. We'll look at the four verses we read, and we'll look at four points on those verses. Again, I'll give you some, some nuggets here and there to take notes so that you continue to, to grow. First, those saved by grace are bondservants. Or we could say in your version, servant, or in your, your version that you use, it could say slave. I like the term bondservant a little bit more. Paul does not begin, notice this, as he begins his letter, he doesn't begin the honorable reverend Dr. Paul. He doesn't do that. He doesn't begin the best apostle this side of heaven, Paul. He doesn't do that. He doesn't begin Paul, world-renowned author and most sought-after speaker. He doesn't begin with any of those, and he would have been able to do so. No one would have corrected him in the early church world during those times. They would have gone, yeah, that kind of makes sense, rightfully so, he can make that claim. He doesn't. He often 
refers to, and he says here very literally, Paul, a slave of God. He refers to himself very often as a bondservant of Christ, but this is the only place in Scripture that he calls himself a bondservant. There's a reason for that. Dulos Theo, that is the, the word to describe a bondservant of God. It's the only place that Paul refers to himself. It was a title applied to Moses and several other prophets. So perhaps he is trying to identify with these Old Testament heroes to give himself a little bit more stage to stand on. Because what he's about to do, he's about to bring in some hard truth, and he doesn't quite know if it's going to be heard or applied or accepted. And so he's establishing a little bit of credibility with the Jewish critics that are plaguing the church, so he calls himself a slave. Throughout the church in America, especially, and I'm sure other places, but predominantly here in America, you may have heard the phrase similar to this in a message, God loves you and desperately wants you to be successful and happy. Now, now maybe that's not said directly, but it's conveyed a little bit in the teaching. Nothing could be farther from the truth. This is, this is not... God doesn't sit up there going, ah, oh, man, I yeah, really, really hope that Randy is successful this week. I really hope he's happy when he wakes up. Sorry, God, that's, that doesn't drive our God. When we, when we apply a statement like this, the connotation is if you work hard, plan ahead, be responsible, look out for yourself, don't let anyone else tell you what to believe, you be you. That's what it's saying. Because God really wants you to be successful and happy. But here's the deal. If you are a child of God by means of reconciliation that we read about in Corinthians, then you are not your own. I just want you to sit on that for a moment. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 19, says this. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. In the early church, the idea of your whole body was your whole self. We tend to think of physical. It was so much more than that. As God's bondservant, one is or under orders to obey and serve, not self, but him and him alone. And this is the perspective, this self-perspective, this self-awareness that Paul writes this letter to his friend Titus. That it's not my words, it's not my opinions, it's not my beliefs, it's not my morals, it's not my ethics, it's not my choosing to do with my time, it's not my choosing to do with what I want to do with my money, it's God's. I am his servant, I am his bondservant. What he says, go. Second, knowledge of truth changes everything. The knowledge of truth. Now, I want to make a, a differentiation here. Knowledge of something good 
is great. Knowledge of something sort of true can be good. Knowledge of pure truth changes everything. You guys know this. You thought about it when you came in this morning. You may not know this. You sat down today knowing, I know this chair is going to hold me. You didn't think about it because you know it's true. You've tried it time and time again, and it has proved itself worthy of your lap. You did it. And this is the same thing with the Holy Scriptures. Knowledge of truth changes everything. Paul says in in chapter 1, verse 1, that the knowledge of truth is, quote, according to godliness. It is the same Greek preposition, kata, which can mean purpose and intent. We need to make sure we understand this. So according to Ephesians 2, if we unpack Ephesians chapter 2, all that have been saved by grace through faith are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now notice a running theme here. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and he is your king, you belong to, you are the subject of, the bondservant of the king of kings and lord of lords. That's what you're signing up for. End of story. What that means is this, you forfeit your opinions. I want you to dwell on this for a moment. And I'm I'm trying to say this as lovingly and gentle as I possibly can. And not just for you all here, not just for those of you online, but to our Christian culture in this world. You forfeit your opinions. You forfeit your desires. You forfeit your wants. You forfeit your choices. You forfeit your truth. They're not yours anymore. They belong to the king. Now, at times, the king will gladly give them back to you, but it's his choice. He chooses to give them back. And sometimes our views, our wants, our desires, our beliefs, our morals, they don't line up with God, but they're ours. And that which is in the world has crept into the church. And I want to implore you, brothers and sisters, to, to hold up what you believe, to hold up your world perspective, to hold up the words that come in your mouth based on what God wants. Now, sometimes he'll give those back to you because he's a loving God, but sometimes he'll replace it with what he wants, what he desires. Why? Because they belong to the king. You submit to one who is not of this world. And so sometimes his wants, his desires, his passions aren't going to make sense to you. Why? Because you're in this world and he is not. He is in heaven. The ruler of this world is the enemy. And so God's thoughts, his plans, his desires don't always add up. But we must be willing to submit to at any given moment the desires and the wants and the passions of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Paul's perspective. Submission. (laughs) How many of you love that word? (laughs) 
Not a whole lot of loving on submission, right? We love the get out of hell card. We love Easter. We love Christmas. We love potlucks. We love worshiping together. But submission? Submission is an entirely different level of commitment that we tend not to like very much. You might already know this, but authority is not a very popular concept in our day. Is that news to anyone? You may know this. We're a, we're a nation founded on rebellion. <laughs> we value an independent, contrary spirit as a virtue. We do. Sometimes authority can scare us. We think of overbearing, mind-controlling cults or lording over uh, governments or dictators, but God instituted proper authority for a reason. As a necessary structure, not only for government, but for family and for his church. And we're going to see this as we continue to move forward in this book of Titus. But Paul wants to make sure this epistle, this, this tiny little epistle, begins by saying all of this authority, all this bond servant, all of this submission, it starts with his authority in your life. It doesn't start with the government. It, it doesn't start with the neighbor across the street that you are convinced they live wrong. It doesn't begin with your critic uh, heart of a family member who's living life the way they shouldn't be. It begins with you. It begins with you doing a very healthy dose of self-reflection, uh, of inward contemplation. Am I a servant? Am I a bond servant? But notice the Bible does something that shouldn't have to do, but the Holy Spirit in its wisdom knew people like you and I were going to be reading this, so I think it's thrown in there. We're reminded in verse 2 that God who does not lie. Just as a quick reminder, okay, God doesn't lie. And what that should do, we, we tend to brief over that pretty quickly. What that should tell you is the words that you read in Scripture are not lies, the promises, the hope, the encouragement, it might not come at the time we want it to come, but he doesn't lie. He doesn't lie in general. He doesn't lie to you. And not only does he not lie, but for those who choose hope and, and faith in Jesus Christ, those who answer his calling when, when he calls them by name, he planned eternal life. We read that in our four verses here. He planned eternal life according to the scriptures. And he has left to prepare a place for you. We read that in the gospels. And we're told if he is to go away and prepare a place for you, he's going to come back and to bring you to where he is also. That's a promise. He doesn't lie. That's what he's doing even right now. And this is not only a wonderful plan, but it's a wonderful promise that's already in motion that God said, I put this together, this plan of salvation, this plan of Jesus, this plan of hope, I put it in motion even before the foundation and the creation of the world. I had this planned for you and for me and for your neighbor across the street and your coworker 
For those that do heinous evil in our world, they used to be someone's son or daughter. And he loves them. And he died for them. And he put that into place before the world was ever created. That's how uniquely special you are. And this is what truth does. Truth allows you to submit. Truth sets you free. Truth lets you in on the plan, almost a peek behind the curtain. And truth leads to godly living. Number three, the proclamation of the gospel is critical. Verses 1 and 3 are very closely tied. The doctrine of election referenced in verse 1 does not nullify the need for evangelism. Sometimes we can say that, well, uh, the, the word of God says that people are elected, therefore, next third point, uh, that th therefore we don't need to do uh, evangelism, but rather it establishes the need for evangelism, the need for the proclamation of the gospel, the need for the scriptures to be spoken and to be taught. And God entrusted the, this beautiful word, if your version says that, entrusted, go ahead and circle and underline that. He entrusted Paul with the proclamation of his word. That is the word, the message of the gospel, which centers on the person of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that it manifests itself at the perfect season or the proper time. Proclamation was the word that was used for the message of the king's herald, right? You just know what a herald is. You'd walk in, they bring a bugle, they, and then they give the king's message. The message wasn't made up by the herald. They gave word for word what was spoken to them, and then they, de they deliver the message. They don't add to it. They don't make adjustments to it. They don't change it. If you ever go to a church and they're adding to Scripture or they're adding words to Scripture or they're adding meaning to Scripture that aren't there, pick up your stuff, gracefully walk out and go find a different church. Because the proclamation that, that we, all Christ followers, are called to do is proclaim the message, not of our own, which we often do, just proclaim what the Bible says. And this is the proclamation that has been entrusted to Paul. He'll go on later in the letter to say, it's also been entrusted to you. He didn't make his own message. He proclaimed the king's message. And that's our job when we live out the gospel. When we live our lives, when we're with friends, when we're at school, when we're with family, is to live in a way that others clearly see the gospel message. It's a tall order. But we don't have to add to it. We don't have to change it. This is what it's saying. God determined, and newsflash, he's God. He can choose to do that. God determined that the means for saving people is going to be the proclamation of the word of God. He could have done it any other way, but he chose for the proclamation of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel brings people from real death to real life. I don't know when the last time you attended a funeral. I don't know when the last time you went to a viewing. It seems like that's becoming a little bit of a thing of the past. Now we do memorials. Uh, but back in the day, it used to be regular. No matter who died, you did a viewing. I don't know when the last time you saw a dead body. They are dead. 
they are not going to get up. They're not going to sneeze. They're not going to have an itch. They're not going to open their eyes and scare you. They're dead. And it can be, if you've not been around that for, for any length of time, or maybe it's the first time, it can be kind of a morbid, uh, uh, soul-jolting experience. But you know what death is when you see that individual. Well, the gospel says real death is real. And the gospel says we were dead in our sin before Jesus. But the gospel says it brings real death to real life. And this naturally begs the question, well then, is godliness the sign of truth or is truth the, the cause of godliness? Kind of a fun campfire discussion. And the answer, hopefully I don't uh, feel like one of those countries who saddle both sides of the fence, but the answer, of course, is they both go together. It's both and. Godliness is the sign of or truth, because truth leads to godliness. And the Bible says that truth is the proclamation and living out the scriptures. As you go to work tomorrow, as you interact with family and neighbors today. And as our faith grows in knowledge from the truth of the proclamation, so we too will grow in our godliness. They're intertwined. It's not one way or another. Said this another way, the more that we understand what God has done for us in Christ, the more we will love him and live for him in our godliness. So we could grab one side or the other and really argue that from either a philosophical standpoint or, or an ethical standpoint, or it's kind of the chicken or the egg. The reality is truth changes everything. These scriptures, man, do I love this book. This changes everything. This gives perspective on everything. This takes from the, from the darkest of hearts in the darkest of moments, and it allows you to say, it is well with my soul, the song we just sang. Quite frankly, friends, I don't know how you sing that song, it is well with my soul, if you're not grounded in Jesus Christ. I've done several funerals of non-Christians, and I just don't know how they get through it. I have no idea. But truth changes everything. Fourth, what is so amazing about grace? If you haven't read that book, it's a great book. But what is so amazing about grace and peace, Valdez? Just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, if you don't know, Grace Valdez is right here. We're talking about God's grace. She's amazing, but we're talking about a holy grace. All right. Although Titus is one of Paul's shortest letters, okay? Let, let's just agree on that. It consists, and I'm going to encourage you to read it. There's only 46 verses in the whole book. You can do it. Bring it into the bathroom with you. you I promise you, you can bust through it. 659 words. That is darn close to Twitter material. You guys can get there. It contains one of the longer introductions. I've been studying Titus for the past couple of months preparing for this. 
What I like to do is I like to take the passages. I like to go to the original language. I'm no Steve, but I like to go to the original language. I like to diagram it and try to fully understand it because even though our versions are really great and, and very closely tied to the original language, sometimes it's a little bit different. So I went and I opened up Titus chapter one, verses one through four. I opened up the original language and what I found was, uh, let's see, what can I refer it to? You ever have a bunch of necklaces that get tangled up? It was like that. All four sentences are one sentence, and it's all over the place. So Alicia, Alicia is a journalism, English specialty, grammar expert, and, and she went to do it, and she told me this morning, told us in prayer, that she rewrote it because she critiqued Paul's grammar all over the place, which I think is sufficient. It's okay to do. I think if we, he were here, he would agree with that as well. But it's a very, very difficult sentence structure, at least for me, to diagram. But all of the themes that we're going to deal with in this book are in these first four verses. Now, he may not have articulated all that gracefully, but the meat, the content is beautiful. It's perfect. It's exactly what the Spirit wanted. And perhaps since Paul intended the church to read this letter, not, not just Titus, he felt it necessary to spend a little bit more time being clear. He, he took, if you, you, all you college students in here, he took kind of his thesis statement, his, his beginning intro to the paragraph, and he went overboard. It'd be like if your professor went, look, I appreciate you trying to like tell us everything that's in your paper, but kind of trim it down. But Paul chose to give more than less. Verse four reminds us that where sin abounds, God's grace and peace abounds further and deeper. Can we hold on to that, friends? Especially in our day today, both individually and culturally as a whole, can we hold on to the truth that sin abounds? It abounds deep. It seems like every day, certainly every week, there is something tragic we find out about. Sin is on the move, and the scriptures say it's crouching behind every corner, around every door, seeking to kill and steal and destroy. Sin abounds. But wherever that is taking place, God's grace and peace abounds further and deeper. And one of the glories of the gospel is the power of God for salvation, even in the midst of the most corrupt cultures. And we need to remember that salvation is a pretty radical term. We throw it around in the church all the time, salvation, salvation, salvation. We sing songs about salvation. We have to remember it's a pretty radical term. Why is that? Because you don't save someone who needs a little bit of help or just needs a little bit of advice. You save someone who's about to die. Salvation has come to this world who's about to die. Little Teddy, little Henry, these little minions of Alex that run around here during worship as they dance and they laugh and they shake their shakers and their cymbals. He came because sin for them is very real. It's very real for Naya. It's very real for Josh and Mark and Miranda. But where sin is very real and very powerful, God's grace comes even stronger and more powerful. 
you save someone who's helplessly and hopelessly lost without outside intervention. Again, I've used this, ter- this analogy, and it's probably horrible, but I haven't taken the time to think of a new one. But, you know, as a kid, I really thought quicksand was everywhere. For some reason, every TV show in the 70s and 80s, either cartoon or, or television, there was, I don't know why, but there was quicksand. So I haven't ever investigated that. But you needed someone not in the quicksand to offer you a branch or, or something to help pull you out, and that's salvation. You need someone not in your predicament to pull you out because the human race is dead in sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 tells us that only God has the power to raise the dead. Amen? Only God has the power to do something with that deceased individual laying in a coffin. Only God can bring their bones to life, either this side of heaven or in heaven. Only God can do that. And the Bible says that humanity is also extremely spiritually blind. We're spiritually thirsty, but we are spiritually blind. So if you want to know, why why do people look at like tarot cards and and why do they read moon readings and why do they go have someone read their palms and why are they so interested in spirituality and Buddha and all these things? Because we're spiritually hungry creatures. God made us that way. We want to know truth. We're searching for it. It's got to be here somewhere. But we're spiritually blind. And 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us that only God who spoke light into existence has the power to open blind eyes. So let me give you a little encouragement. If you have a friend, maybe at work, maybe at the university, maybe a neighbor, you're friends with them and you so badly want them to know Jesus, remember they're spiritually blind. The only reason you know Christ The only reason you know the hope of Jesus is because God opened your eyes. It's not like you figured it out. It's not like you weighed pros and cons and went, I'm going to go with Jesus. No, like uh, you're beautiful, most of you. You're smart, most of you. You're strong, most of you. Like, but you're not that good. And so a little patience goes a long way. They're spiritually blind. Sandy and I have tons of family members that are spiritually blind. Good people looking for truth, looking for spirituality, just looking for love in all the wrong places. And friends, that's what's amazing about grace and peace. That's what makes us worship. Two of the greatest gifts from God this world has ever seen. So that's the first four verses. We're all done. That's the first four verses to kind of lay the platform. So what do you need to know? What's the takeaway from the introductory verses? First, you have given, if, if, have you, let me ask that, have you given your life to Jesus? Have you given your life to, do you associate as his bondservant? And some time of self-reflection is really, really important. Some self-inventory is of value because you and God are the only ones who know where you stand. You and God are the only ones who know if you're a casual follower of Jesus, if he's a tack-on, if, if, like what Alex alluded to during our opening set of worship, is he just one of many things that's a part of your life? 
Are you one who lays your life down every aspect of his or her life before the throne of God? Second, truth. As we'll continue to see, truth changes everything. Are you in the word? Are are you reading this book? Look, I love the Holy Scriptures. I love them. It is so hard for me to read a lot of it at once. I get distracted. I start thinking about street tacos. I I start wondering what we're doing. Like, I just want to be totally, I love this book. I love the words. I love the truth. Sometimes it's just quite frankly hard to read. But man, are you in this? Are you searching? Are you growing in the word of God? Are you memorizing? Are you meditating on this truth? Because there's power in this book, in the word of God. Third, does your life proclaim the gospel? There's been a lot of moments throughout this book as we really dig in that you're gonna go, eh, it just wasn't very comfortable. I'm sorry and I'm not sorry because there's some power in being in the uncomfortable. Does your life reflect the gospel or does it reflect something else? Would those around you, and I have had this before in my late teens, early 20s, would someone go, I had no idea you were a Christian. I've had that said to me. Not proud of that, but that's how I was living my life that the world didn't even know I knew Jesus because my life wasn't living the gospel. We're not all called to be pastors and teachers. We're not all called to put on a microphone and talk. I'm not suggesting y'all quit your job and go on the mission field. But today and tomorrow when you go to work, does your life emulate grace and mercy and gentleness and kindness? Are you growing in some of those? Sandy and I and our kids, we've been here this summer. We will have been here for six years. And I'm a different person today than when we interviewed. I am closer with my God today. And some of you know my warts. You know my calluses. You know my sin. I never proclaim to be perfect, but I'm growing and I invite you to grow with me. I invite you to take a look deeper because God so longs for that, for the changing truth and the power of Jesus Christ. And finally, grace and peace. Will you show these two words throughout your week? Will you show grace to someone? Will you show peace to someone? I promise you, you'll stand out because there's not a whole lot of grace and peace floating around our world. You will look different and people will begin to ask, Will you receive his grace and peace? Will you be uh, available enough to where God can pour out his grace and peace on you in a very unique individual way to where you accept it? And in return, will you give that grace and peace away? Not to those who deserve it, but for those who need it. You with me? 
this is Titus. And here's the great thing. God is willing to meet you right where you are, right now, right here. And his call, much like our mission statement, and that is for here at Rock Creek Church, we exist to equip every single person to take the next step in becoming a more fully devoted follower of Jesus. That's why we exist. We want to help you take a step. And I believe God's word to you today is just take a step. Just take a step. I don't, I don't know what that's going to look like for you, but just take a tiny step. Sorry, your fingers might get tired. I just want to share this. I know we're late. Um, it's Alex's fault. Um, I was trying to find someone to blame. Couldn't figure it out. Actually, it's my fault. Um, I just want to share this. So the other day, um, shortly after... Um, Eric's murder at the police department. Uh, it was pretty late at night and I just needed a break. Hundreds of FBI agents and ATF and every police department in the state. And I just needed a break. I was at that cracking point. So I just went outside, it was cold. It was cold and it was dark. And for a while there, we had Eric's car parked in front of the police department and, and just hundreds, if not thousands of people brought flowers and posters and action figures and badges and everything you could think to, to throw on a memorial. And I was just standing there by myself, just praying and, and getting some alone time. And I saw this car pull up and I'm on edge, so I'm staring them down like they're a bad guy. And this little old lady gets out. She could be a bad guy too. She gets out of her car and she's got this little Tupperware. I don't know, five inches by 12 inches, maybe smaller. And she's walking up really, really slowly and she comes and she stands before the car and it's just her and I. And she's she's got this and I'm like well if she if she leaves those there I'm going to eat one <laughs> right, that was my first thought and I, I said how you holding up and she turns to me with tears and she's like I didn't know what to do so I made some cookies she took a step Quite frankly, it didn't change anything. It wasn't this world-shattering moment, but it affected me. And I brought those in, and I told a whole room full of people, hey, little lady dropped off cookies. And guess what? A ton of people got up and came over and grabbed a cookie. They'll never know her name. And she's out some Tupperware. They'll never, but she took a step. She did what she could. She, she knew there, were, there was a prompting in her heart. I need to do something. And I would, if I could go back and talk to her, I would say, that's the Holy Spirit in you, nudging you, pulling you closer to do something. I just want to encourage you, don't think on the 30,000 foot level. Just get right down close and go, what, what can I do today to grow closer to my God who loves me? Dear friends, you are loved by the living God. He is crazy about you. There isn't a moment of this day he doesn't think about you. 
that he doesn't want a closer relationship, that he doesn't want to reveal his power, that he doesn't want to reveal his mercy, that he doesn't want to offer you forgiveness, that he doesn't want to give you another second, third, fourth, 450th fresh start. That's what he does. That's his power. That's his authority. That's what causes us to worship. That's what causes us to submit. That's Titus. I hope you're excited. I hope you read it. Again, not, not too long, but read ahead for next week. Uh, would you stand with me as we close in prayer and, and turn it over to our incredible team? God, we love you. We thank you for your holy scriptures. We thank you for the truth that is in this book. For the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that is described and outlined that the formula to find true life is laid out very clearly. It's just a matter of, will we trust? Will we trust the truth? And so our prayer is that you would continue to guide us as we study, guide us as we worship, guide us as we take a step and do what we can with what you've called us to do. That's our prayer. And we so love you in Jesus Christ's name and all of God's people said, amen.